If you worry about what other people think, soon enough, you will be on the sidelines of your life. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kozowski, and I have a very special guest. We have an upcoming book, Money and Love. And I always get excited when books get sent to me. Because when books get sent to me, I have an opportunity to dive in and really get a sense of where the author is going and have some awesome questions lined up and just to give you a feel of where their perspective came from and and the growth that happens along the way for you along the journey. So again, it's money and love, an intelligent roadmap for life's biggest decisions. Today, we have Myra Strober and Abby Davison is the co-author as well. So Myra Strober is a labor economist and a professor emerita at Stanford University. She was the founding director of Stanford Center for Research on Women, now the Clayman Institute for Gender Research, and the first chair of the National Council for Research on Women. So one of, first of all, welcome to the program. Welcome to the show, Myra. I, I'm Thanks grateful so to have you here. Thanks. So where I wanted to begin is I wanted, you talk about challenging times force us to reassess our lives. And this is often where creativity and innovation come up. I want to take you back to 1970 when you were told by your then employer at the University of California, Berkeley, that you would never be hired for a tenure track because you were a mother of two young children. Can you Take us back to that moment and what were you feeling? Tell us what was going on in your mind at the time. So I got to MIT, I got to uh, Berkeley. Um, I had been a doctoral student at MIT and my first day um, at Berkeley, I saw two of my former classmates uh, from MIT economics department and they were both uh, assistant professors which meant that they had six years to prove themselves. And in the meantime, they had security of employment for six years. And I was hired as a lowly lecturer, which means that I'm hired from year to year and never have an opportunity to become permanent. So I'm not shy and I made an appointment to see the department chair. And I asked him why uh, these two men had their kind of appointment and I had my lesser appointment. And believe it or not, he said to me, it's because I live in Palo Alto. And I thought, wow, you learn something new every day. I didn't know that you had to live in Berkeley. I didn't say this to him, that you have to live in Berkeley to be on the tenure track. But anyway, I was very upset and I walked back to my office and got into my car. I was living in Palo Alto and I always say I became a feminist on the Bay Bridge because I realized as I was driving across that bridge with the gorgeous view of San Francisco that I had been had and that you didn't have to live in Berkeley to be on the tenure track. So the next day I went and um, I started looking for people who had written about this. And I found not too many, but there was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. um, And she talked to me across the years and across the miles. And I realized that this problem that I was experiencing now was a very longstanding problem, Um, that uh, you couldn't uh, be both a mother because I had two young children. And when I went back, both a mother and a a professor or any other major uh, role in the economy. So when I went back to the chair, he said he couldn't see me for three weeks, but I waited patiently to see him. And I said, you know, I'm going to ask you the same question again, and I would like to have an honest answer. And he said, well, it's because you have two young children. At the time, I had an infant and a three-year-old. And he said, we don't know what's going to happen to you. 
And I said, well, you know, I'm not asking you to give me tenure today. Let's wait for six years. We'll see what happens to me. No, he said, I couldn't possibly sell that to the department. Wow. So they and I decided that what I could do to help myself feel better and to try to make sure this didn't happen to other people was to teach a course um, using Elizabeth Cady Stanton's work and some psychologists and so on. There was hardly anything in economics. And I got permission to teach a course called Women and Work. And uh, this book that you have on your desk there is an outgrowth of that course. Uh, that course that I started teaching um, in 1972. Wow. And who knew like such an opportunity evolved from this time of frustration? Because I, I can, I, when I got to that part, I'm like, oh my, <laughs> I'd be steaming mad. And I'd be like, you know, because oh, I've always found like, I have three children. And they're young adults now, but I, I keep thinking about that shouldn't stop a woman from having those opportunities to grow and make an impact in the world. So the good news is that uh, the spring before I came to Berkeley, um, the very few women who were on the faculty uh, filed a complaint with the Labor Department. And so shortly after I got to Berkeley, um, the Labor Department sent a group of investigators who at first <laughs> uh, took a hotel room and then realized they were going to be there for a while. So they took an apartment. And um, about a year and a half later, after their investigation, not just of me, yeah. um, I got an offer from Berkeley, a tenure track offer, which I turned down because Stanford was worried that it might have a complaint filed against it. <laughs> and so the business school at Stanford uh, offered me a tenure track job and I accepted and I became the first woman ever uh, to teach on the Stanford business school faculty. So, wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. And to know, and I'm, what I love the most is, you know, through reading the book, it's about making those decisions based on what you value. And um, some of the things that came up for, for me was, you know, there's a part where you talk about overriding the quick decision impulse, and that we have two systems that um, Daniel Con Kahneman of the author of Think Fa Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about that there's the intuitive side and emotional, which is system one, and system two is which you really leverage in the book a lot is slow down your process. You know, I think when I think about couples in love or people thinking, contemplating about getting married, you know, it's a lot based on emotion and not necessarily thinking all those things through and examining everything from those different angles. So um, one, one of the things is we're often not told to let money concerns influence decisions about love and never to let love influence your decisions about money. Why does your research show that neither myth is true? Well, I mean, if people are honest, they will tell you that their marriage decision was based not just on love, that it was also based on, um, financial factors, um, you know, they didn't fall in love with somebody, um, well, maybe they did fall in love, but they didn't marry someone who was um, an economic disaster for them. Or if they did, the marriage wasn't going to last very long. Right. Um, and so the decision to marry or even to live with someone is based um, if you're honest with yourself, on both love and money. And, um, you know, the decision to take a job, particular job might be based only on money, uh, but if you haven't checked in with your family about this new job that you're taking based only on money, uh, you may have an unpleasant surprise waiting for you. Uh, when the rest of your family says either we're not going or we're going and we're going to make you very unhappy about this. So 
the, the fiction that has gone on for centuries that love and money are separate and that, you know, one part of your anatomy is your brain and the other part of your anatomy is your heart and never the twain shall meet. Well, they're both part of the same body and these decisions are inextricably intertwined. And, you know, I, I realized as I was reading this that, you know, some people, they have marriage classes that they go to before they're going to be able to get married, for example, in the church. But there's many times where people, if they're not affiliated to, you know, maybe a religion, that they don't have those type of resources available to them. And, you know, reading your book definitely helps people have those deeper conversations about where they want to live, the choices that they want to make, who's going to stay home. Do, do we want to have family nearby and just in, incredible. And the approach you use is a five C's and, and to evaluate decisions that involve love and money, because these decisions of course can be very overwhelming. And I, I love how it's about, let's talk about these things first. And I'm, I'm going to, uh, let you dive into them. But the one I wanted to, you know, just the number one is clarify what's important to you. And, you know, when I was thinking of people that I know around me, I was thinking that they don't always actually take time to clarify what exactly what they want. They go with the flow or they just do what their parents did. And um, it's fascinating when you ask them what they want, they have no idea. So I would love for you to expand a little bit more on your approach in, in your book, Money and Love. Yes. Well, in order to clarify what you're trying to do, you need to slow down. And that's why system one decision-making for these overwhelmingly important decisions really doesn't work very well. Because if you just go by your gut, now, I mean, it's fine. You see someone across the room, you're very attracted to them. Wonderful. Go for it. Um, that's different <laughs> from deciding to spend the rest of your life with them. Um, you need to clarify what you want. And you know, it's not like um, finding a mate is like choosing a pizza and you decide in advance that you want mushrooms and uh, pepperoni and so on. No, but you've got to have some idea of what you want. You know, do you want, never mind the other person, do you want a career? Do you want to be a full-time mom? Mm -hmm. Do you want to marry someone as a man who um, will have a full-time career so you can be a full-time dad? I mean, if that's really what you would love, then once you've clarified this, you can seek for that person. But unless you have some notion of what it is that you want, uh, you know, you, you really can't make decisions that help you get there. Very so slow down, <laughs> slow down, take your time and then sit with yourself or walk with yourself or swim with yourself or however you like to talk to yourself and ask yourself, honestly, what is it that I want? What kind of life do I want? Yeah. And, and you talk about that clarify. It's really, um, I'm just going to take it straight from the book, being willing to consider your own desires takes courage because we we're unconsciously jumping through hoops. Other people have set up for us. Right. Right. So this is particularly difficult, really, if you're a man. Uh, I've had men in my classes. Um, you know, I started out teaching a class on uh, women and work. And then some intrepid guys took the class and said to me, if you would change the title of this class to work and family, we personally will recruit guys for you next year. So by the time I stopped teaching the class uh, at Stanford, 40% of the students were men and the conversations were a lot better and more realistic with 40% yeah. of the students as men. And, um, you know, some of those men, despite the fact they were in business school, really did want to consider marrying a woman who would be the primary earner 
and spending some time, full time, taking care of their kids. So in our society, that that's a that's a hard decision to tell people about still. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I remember years ago, and you know, it wasn't said directly to me about women going to university so they can get a missus, not that they were getting a master's degree. They were finding a mate and they, the education ceased once they got married and that was it. And I was just like, really? Is that what you want your girls and daughters and everybody to become when they have such skill sets and, and can contribute to making the world a better place? So one of the things that I, I also really liked was that you talk about how we seek advice. And it makes me laugh because often, you know, when people want to give their opinion, we got to be careful because we might not want the answer that they're giving us. And we rarely want to be told what to do. And the part that you really address here is, you know, um, Adam Grant makes a point that the best advice doesn't come specifically in what to do. It's helping us really look at our priorities and find the blind spots in our thinking. And I'm sure some of the discussions, can, can you share an example of a discussion you may have had in one of your classes where maybe someone was able to share another person's blind spot in, in um, when it came to money and love and seeing the broader choices that come up? Well, one of the um, examples would be um, as a manager, because as I say, you know, work and family are not separate, they're interrelated. So you're a manager and you're also a human being. <laughs> and um, one of the guys was talking about how he, he felt really proud of himself because um, he was allowing the women who worked for him to um, take longer maternity leaves. And he was um, building that into his long-term planning. And one of the women said to him, um, not every woman wants to take a long maternity leave. Some women would prefer to take a shorter maternity leave and come back to work sooner. He was truly astonished at this, the guy. He thought that he really was helping uh, women uh, to who worked for him to have a better life by um, suggesting that they take a longer maternity leave. So that's an example of, you know, <laughs> that's an example of a blind spot, right? Right. Uh, and so his classmate pointed out that blind spot and he was... Uh, he was considerably chastened and I don't think he made that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because they make those assumptions, but also thinking that they're, they're doing the right thing. Of course. Like his in intention was good, but it wasn't getting the outcomes that he was hoping that he was going to get from the people around him. Right. Yeah. And, you know, does the same advice apply to people starting their lives as well as for couples? Um, married for decades and you know as I go through through the book I was like I, I think so but I, I want to uh, um, dive in a little bit more into your framework well you know married for decades means that um, you too have been through a whole lot of change and you're likely continuing to go through change and you're likely to have more change. So yeah. as we get older, as our children get older, as we start thinking about retirement, everything changes. And um, I had one colleague who told me that she really couldn't uh, be enthusiastic about her husband retiring unless he had some plan about what he was gonna do every day. <laughs> Uh, because she was afraid that uh, somehow or other she would be called upon to entertain him 24-7. Yeah. And so she really pushed hard for him to clarify 
what it was that he was going to do when he retired. And of course, that issue was not an issue for them ever before. Yeah. Because uh, before that time, the name of the game was to earn money and support the family. Yeah. And you and you find yourself at different life stages and priorities might change, values might change. Maybe you didn't think of getting higher education beyond the degree initially, but later on, as the kids got older, you thought, well, I have more to give, right? And so some of those values definitely do change. What What's new about some of the financial challenges of marriages these days that wasn't true for our parents' generation? Well, our parents' generation, by and large, although my mother happened to work and, um, but by and large, women who had children did not work uh, for pay. They worked plenty <laughs> without pay in the home, but they didn't work for pay. And um, we expected husbands, fathers to uh, earn enough to support their family. And um, that's changed very much. Uh, now, um, women uh, women have a higher rate of attending college than men do, and uh, most of them uh, work. It's also the case that the age of marriage has increased. So now, by the time you get married or settle down with somebody permanently, um, you know you have you have a work history. And you're used to earning money. And so um, you need to figure out between the two of you, how are you going to lead your life? Uh, what kind of life you want? This is where Clarify comes in. So, you know, if you want one person to be a full-time parent, well, then you better either find somebody who earns a lot on their own or move to an area where the cost of living is lower. And I have had some students who um, decided that they wanted to work less hard and they've moved to areas, um, Idaho in particular from California where uh, the cost of living is way less and you don't need to work so hard to support your family. So, so do you find that it's a certain, like, is it millennium gen, generation X, Z, like, do you find it, it's a certain generation that's doing this or just a mix of different priorities over the years? It seems to me that um, each of the generations that have come along are diverse and that you can find people who want to go, you know, into the woods, so to speak, <laughs> in every, in any generation but the situation is tougher now because the cost of living has increased and because it's really difficult unless um, the person is a very high earner to support a family um, on one salary. Um, you know, that said, you might decide not to have children and that would make it easier. Uh, or you might decide to have only one child, which would make it easier. Uh, so again, you need to clarify what's important to you. You know, if you if it's really important to you to have three children, um, well, okay, you can start there, and then figure out how you're going to support that family. Yeah, and and you know what is interesting that sometimes we find out along the way that men sometimes feel that they've made the decisions for the family and not always communicating and getting the wife's input because that's how they were raised. The man will make the decisions. So I think it's very important, you know, step two of your approach is that communication because otherwise I think that there'd be some resentment build, <laughs> building up and that it is important to share how you're feeling about things that are happening to you, both big and small and share why you feel that way. And sometimes I don't know if couples are openly sharing some of those, those things. And it can lead to what you refer to, you know, that there's better to communicate instead of going into stonewalling. Well, I had a former student who told me that she just decided one day she had a very 
high paying and responsible job that she was finished with this. She, she now that she had two children, she wanted to be a full-time mom. And so she quit. And I said, you didn't talk to your husband about this. She said, no, because he earned so much that I knew that we could make it without my salary. And uh, I just had this talk about relying on your gut. You know, I, I just had this wow. sense that I needed to be home. Well, so when she finally did talk to him about this, <laughs> um, you know, he agreed that he certainly was financially capable of supporting the family himself. But he pointed out to her that uh, this put a lot of stress on him, that, um, you know, if he lost this job, uh, he had he had no backup because she was now going to be home full time. And she hadn't considered that, that mm -hmm. even though financially it was fine uh, in terms of potential stress, um, this was not good for him. And so you know, he was not happy at all that she had made this decision without talking to him about it. Yeah, I can see. And that starts opening up the dialogue where you can ask more questions. You, you can dig deeper and find out the other person's fears. And that vulnerability really does make people go closer that into me you see, right? And, you know, when they talk about having that intimacy, that those conversations are what leads to deeper growth within a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the definition of intimacy as into me see, that you're allowing someone to see into your innermost desires and fears, um, and, and you're listening to the other person talk about their desires and fears. That is, as you say, how a marriage or a relationship is strengthened. Yeah. Because one of the things is we know that there's bumps in a relationship. What are, what are some of the ways, you know, we, we talked about the intimacy, but what are some of the most effective ways to anticipate and address some of those bumps? Well, some of them are, um, are kind of obvious if you think about it. <laughs> so, you know, having a child, uh, becoming pregnant, um, um, uh, the birth of a child, having a child in the house, um, that's a stressful time uh, for everybody. You have to get used to a whole new way of life. And so anticipating that a little bit and talking in advance about uh, desires and fears is a good step. If it looks like there are going to be real bumps, it probably would be wise to talk to a couple's therapist uh, even before any uh, problems arise, just to clarify what everybody's going to do here and how it's going to be handled. Uh, at the same time, when the last child goes off to college, that's another uh, point where uh, things are going to change a fair bit. And so you can anticipate that, talk about it, see what you're fearing, what opportunities are open to you now. Um, retirement is another one. <laughs> so, you know, um, taking a new job in a new city where everybody has to get used to new schools, new friends, new jobs, that's another potential stress point. So a lot of these are, um, um, foreseeable. Um, the death of a parent can trigger uh, things like that. Certainly the death of a child or the death of a spouse or the death of a good friend. Um, so all of those life changes um, are important. Yeah. And, and keeping those communication streams open definitely will help ease some of those bumps and help you, you know, move through them. And but it takes commitment, a shared commitment is what you refer to in the book as well. It's important to have that shared commitment. Yes. And, you know, when Abby, my co-author, took my class with the man who eventually became her husband. So they had 
you know, they had a, a floor plan uh, to start with. Uh, but other students in my class who were not taking it with their significant other or their spouse um, told me, you know, they would buy the materials for their spouse and they would go and read it together and talk about it. And yeah, because it is a mutual commitment. If only one person is playing this game, the game is not going to work. And and that leads me to our the next question I had is when there isn't that shared commitment, what's the wisest way to end a relationship, especially when there's children or shared assets involved? So unfortunately, I have personal experience with that. Um, my first husband, um, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but he up and left, um, told me one day that he was not happy and uh, he left and, you know, I really went to great lengths to deal with my anger and still keep the relationship alive. Mm -hmm. And then several years later, I met a man who became my second husband, who was a psychiatrist, and he was actually a friend a long time ago of my first husband. And he, after we got married, uh, suggested that we, we got married in October and he suggested that we invite my ex-husband um, for Thanksgiving dinner. And I said, uh, ask me again in five years. I said, I'm not ready to have my ex-husband for Thanksgiving dinner. But my second husband, his name was Jay, um, he, he was patient. And so he did. He asked me again in five years. And we did it. We invited um, my ex-husband, who by then was remarried and had a child uh, for Thanksgiving dinner. We also invited my ex-husband, my, my Jay's ex-wife, and they all came for Thanksgiving dinner. And it was amazing to me. Uh, both my ex-husband and his ex-wife proposed toasts to us to thank us for including them and uh, we we had joint Thanksgivings ever after. And the kids today say that this was just wonderful for them, that they could see that we had gotten past our grievances and we were in fact one family and we did care about one another. And so, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but I, I'm very happy that I yeah. that I well, in, in one part, you, you talk that he had told you at some point, you, you will be happier. And that you actually went for a meal with him and said, thank you, I actually am. You know, and I was just like, I can't imagine how that felt for you. Right. You know, my ex-husband told me uh, when he left that he thought that someday I would tell him that he did me a favor. And um, after some time passed and he was out of my life, I thought, mm, yes, he really has done me a favor. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, you know, he continued to live nearby and I took him to lunch and I told him that. I said, I, I, I'm not happy about the way you did it, but in fact, you did me a favor. <laughs> so <laughs> the saying of time does heal has some truth to it. When it well, comes time to these heals, and I think um, the main task for me was really to manage my anger, mm. to figure out what I was going to do with that feeling of great anger. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, in the same way that I started teaching this course when I was um, told at Berkeley that I couldn't have a regular job. Um, you know, I, I got on with my life and I began seeing um, that I had friends, that my kids were great, that I could have good times. And that helped me get over my anger. Yeah, just to put a refocus on the direction that you're going in, the right. goals that you had for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that... I think, again, that that goes back to clarify. Mm -hmm. I clarified for myself that I didn't want to just be an angry divorced woman. 
that I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to be successful in my career. I wanted to be a great mom and I wanted to be a great friend. And, you know, eventually I wanted to find somebody else, which fortunately I did. And, and that makes me see you as a very powerful role model because there are many women who stay in the place of anger, you know, referring to their ex. And I, and I know that causes a lot of tension for families, kids, especially, um, but being able to focus on what you want and clarify what you want to be able to communicate that not only to yourself, but to others around you, this is who I want to show up as versus being trapped in the past. But also if you stay angry and don't have much else going on, I, I feel that means you're a victim. Mm. You have accepted some kind of victimhood and, um, I don't think that's a fun place to be, to be a victim for the rest of your life. So I like the idea of moving on and letting it go. Yeah. And and the other thing I want to share with everybody um, listening to us right now, that the book does have little exercises for you to work through that 5C approach to really get down to helping you make better decisions for you. So I wanted to make sure I, I uh, touched on that as well. And you know what, Myra, how, how can employers really better support employees' holistic needs for both work and the family so that they, they, they won't default back to the experience that you've had and how that they can support them as, as you mentioned earlier, that not only could they be a manager, but they're a human being who is full of emotion and wanting to raise their families, wanting to support their spouses. So how, how can they help them out? Well, it's interesting because the last chapter of our book is about becoming a change agent. Um, and you can say that that's what I did um, at Berkeley. You know, I, I started teaching a new course. And then when I got to Stanford, um, <laughs> there weren't very many women at Stanford. And uh, despite the fact that I got hired, Stanford was not really uh, treating women well. And so I got together with a bunch of colleagues, mostly men, because there weren't very many women. And we started the Center for Research on Women at Stanford, which has now, uh, it's still going. We started in 1974, and it's now called the Clayman Institute for Gender Research. And um, the university was open to this. Uh, the president of the university really was supportive. Um, several provosts were supportive. Um, and they, they put money into the institute until we could get private funding. And so I think helping, you know, managers who can help change agents um, are very valuable. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a whole chapter on being a change agent and how you need to uh, corral allies into helping you make the changes and we talk about some of the changes that uh, we've seen made and so I think I think if you if you're an employer and you yourself are not a change agent um, it's important to hire people who will be change agents and then support them and listen to what they say needs changing. We have one story in the book about a, a change agent who helped an employer um, create a, a room for new mothers to nurse. I, I mean, to pump. Um, so the employer would not have thought of this on his own. <laughs> and and that sponsorship for those change agents is so so important because without it you know that buy-in for others in in the sector for example like my background is in healthcare so majority of it is women and it is very fascinating of you know how it's led to some of the changes you know, we, we now here in Canada, I'm in Canada, and they have 18 month maternity leaves now. So and really helping, you know, part time positions offer the, you know, the options and shift work, you know, provide some of that. 
One of the, one of the things that I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier, when, as you move through life, you might have different priorities, different values. You might decide, like I said, you might decide to pursue a master's or, you know, change your career altogether. I even remember my father changed his career at 47 years old, just 360. Um, it's because it's something that he knew he needed to do. What is the most common life decision re- that people regret that you've witnessed in your research? Well, I think there are two. One is um, marrying the wrong person. And, <laughs> you know, if, if you have really clarified what you wanted, what you want and, um, you know, done your best to communicate with your partner and it doesn't work out, um, of course you'll be regretful because it's painful. But one of the reasons why Abby and I developed the five C's is so that when people finally make a decision, they have some confidence in the decision. Mm -hmm. And none of us can guarantee that it's the right decision. But, you know, if we feel regretful, at least we can say, you know, I did my best. I made the best decision that I could make given the information I had then and who I was and who my partner was. And, you know, it didn't work out and it's too bad and I'm sorry, but I did my best. Uh, as opposed to, you know, just <laughs> deciding to leave your job as that former student of mine did. And um, I think after she heard from her husband how he felt about her decision, she felt a lot of regret. And she did not have the opportunity to say, well, I made the best decision I could because she made it so quickly without really clarifying um, and communicating and so on. Mm-hmm. So. And did she end up going back to her job? Do you know? Ne- never. No. Yeah. Interesting. And fortunately, uh, her husband was never faced with the fear that he had, you know, that he would lose his job. And so it all worked out for them. But yeah, and that's not always the case, right? So that's why it's so important to be, be prepared and be able to have those conversations so that you both feel confident. Because like when, he, when you mentioned that he had this anxiety, that what if what if he lost his position? what would be the impact on the family? And depending on the economic circumstance, you know, the availability of picking up another job, how, how quick could that be? All right. Yeah. So what's the first money love question that I should ask myself right now? (laughs) Interesting question. Well, that's a little hard for me to answer because I don't really know enough about you and yeah. your life. Um, but um, I think everybody can ask, no matter what stage they're at, uh, could I do a better job of communicating? Am I, uh, am I talking to the relevant people? And once your kids are a little older, relevant people includes older kids, um, Am I communicating what I want? Am I listening to them when they tell me what they want? Um, uh, Am am I, so far as your kids are concerned, am I pushing my own agenda without really listening to their developing agenda? So I think we can all improve along those lines and and ask ourselves uh, questions about our communication style. And and I, when I... (laughs) you talk I can catch many different scenarios there have been times as a parent I want to you know kind of push the agenda and then I remind myself that instead of trying to save one along their journey that they need to go through the process and you know develop their own coping skills and things like that and I I underlined here on page 41 um, listening means paying attention to what your partner is saying letting them determine when they feel they're ready to stop sharing same thing goes for the kids now that they're older you know to be able to just 
sit there and listen and allow them to share and that each of us walks around with some amount of baggage and accepting that you and your partner each have some help can help to understand the negative and somehow undesirable actions and reactions. So we all have different stories that we've carried and that shared commitment. And the same thing goes with the kids, right? You want to be able to have a shared investment in that conversation to see it through to the other side. And of course, at the workplace, communication is different. I mean, you're not bearing your soul to your manager or your employees, but it's still important to listen and um, really listen to what people are telling you about the communication style, about um, the decisions that are being made. Um, Yeah, so that there are no surprises um, when the person just tells you, I can't work here anymore. (laughs) And that can be challenging for people. You know, right now we have people working from home, remotely from home together these days. I know some have gone to a hybrid model that sometimes they go back into the office. But how can they stay Um, start a healthy, not heated conversation with balancing some of those careers and housework. Because I know balancing some of those things, because when you were at the job, you're away from the house from maybe nine to five, eight to four, whatever that looked like. And then you'd come home and do the stuff. But when you're at home, how, how do you manage not being tempted by, you know, dishes in the sink and everything else that goes with it? I think that, um, COVID and um, the uh, Zoom work from home type stuff and working at home have all created new challenges. At work, I think the challenge is there's very little opportunity for informal discussion. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Zoom meetings are not about how are you feeling about this? So that usually came informally you know, on the staircase and in, in <laughs> wherever it was, it wasn't informal meetings. And at home, um, you know, it's too much of a good thing. You're there too many hours and <laughs> too yeah. many opportunities for uh, fights and arguments and um, yeah, and more opportunities to look in the kitchen sink and say, oh my God, when is this going to get cleaned up? So, um, yeah, I think all of these things need to be renegotiated. And um, as we get back to probably more uh, in-person work and less being at home all the time, um, it'll have to be renegotiated again. And, and I think that's important that you, you say that, that we are in constant evolution in our relationships, our careers, um, how the what our vision is, our vision can change along the way as well. So I, I think it's really important that you're constantly evaluating, constantly evolving. What would be one piece of advice that you would tell um, couples, whether they've been married 10 years, 20 years, and they're facing some of the challenges? What would be something that you would tell them today that maybe you wish you were told 20 20 years ago? Well, I think, you know, having what has come to be called date nights are really important Um, because that's the way that I think couples started out. (laughs) Um, And, you know, going back to that model, whether it be for dinner or um, just a walk in the park or whatever it is where There's nothing going on except the two of you um, remembering why you got together in the first place and asking each other lovingly, you know, what's up and what do we need to talk about um, on an ongoing basis. And that's so hard given all the pushes and pulls in our society, kids, soccer practice, you know, parents who need uh, who need attention, illnesses, um, <laughs> economic uh, problems. Yeah. You know, so getting back to just the two of you and building that relationship 
on an ongoing basis is just so important. Yeah. And, and also when I think about that date night to not just talk about kids work and it's about having the, that time of connection. And I think sometimes that's why the phone turns on because they don't know what else to talk about. Cause they're so used to talking about the kids and work and, you know, the household management and things like that. So Myra question that just came to me that I really um, want to ask, what are you most proud of as a mother wife I am proud of the relationships that I have with my children. Um, they're in their fifties now. I love being with them. I love talking to them. Uh, I love whom they've become. I love watching them as parents. Um, and my second marriage, unfortunately, my husband passed away last year, but that was, um, he really taught me how to communicate and how to be intimate um so I'm very proud of that relationship too and I miss it terribly yeah my condolences thank you thank you for sharing that with us I I think you know when we take a moment to pause and reflect on our lives we we can see that it really comes down to those relationships so this book money and love an intelligent roadmap for life's biggest decisions coming out January 10th, 2023, you can pre-order your copy off Amazon and other places where you get your books. What is one thing that you want people to know about this book? You know, I, I know it's really special that you and Abby have, you know, the decades of experiences, um, but what, what do you want people to know? This book, I hope, and I think can make your life better. It can bring you more happiness. It can make your life richer. And I wish that for everybody. Oh, thank, thank you, Myra. And Myra, how can people stay in touch with you or learn more about the work that you have done? Um, there is a website for the book. Um, it's um, moneylovebook.com. And there's going to be an online course uh, associated with the book and there are exercises in the book. So, um, I think you can all stay in touch. <laughs> well, it's been, um, in honor, um, everyone, Myra Strober, thank you so much for coming on the millionaire woman show. We love to talk about life leadership business to help people live rich from the inside out. And I know this book will definitely add richness to many people's lives and help them make decisions that they feel really confident about where they are in that present time. And right. it really starts with your 5C approach, really simple tactics. Um, and I love the exercises. I love the stories inside to help people reflect on where they are at. So I highly recommend this book and uh, I'm grateful for having the opportunity to get the pre-read in and thanking you for joining us here today. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Thanks. And for those of you, I'd also love for you to go over to my website at www.debrakasowski.com, where you'll get your 10-page PDF, Reset Your Mindset. And as Muhammad Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world and go out and make today great.